0: This is a box Media
1: Podcast. Murder Was the Case is a free-form conversational podcast which makes educated speculations about criminal cases and human psychology based upon the information we have reviewed. The show is intended to entertain and educate our listeners with regard to criminal psychology and behavior. At no point should the content of Murder Was the Case, whether spoken by a host or guest, be misconstrued as a formal professional opinion or diagnosis, nor as a wholly accurate or complete account of any case. Any person discussed as a suspect or potential suspect is innocent unless a court of law determines otherwise. If you dig Murder Was the Case on Glassbox Media, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MurderWTCase, or on TikTok at mwtc podcast
2: richard being the killer the way he handled me that he handled me like in the right way you know it's weird to say that he's doing something right but you know oh oh my god i'm sorry is there something you want to ask me before i go on or
1: no just a thought I i should say it but why not that's probably what makes him dangerous you are listening to murder was the case Exploring the darkest, most perverse, and bestial crimes known to man on glass box media. Last month, I reconnected with Dr. Peter Vronsky at the Blake House in Toronto, where I learned about his role in solving the 50 year old murder of Lorraine Montalvo McGraw in Rockland County, New York. Just to recap, Peter has been meeting with convicted serial killer Richard Cottingham and the relatives of his victims for some time now, to close what appears to be dozens of unsolved sex slayings committed by the cot in the 60s and 70s. After our meeting, Peter introduced me to Sonia Ruiz-McGraw, Lorraine's granddaughter, to hear her story and the story of her family. Here is the first part of our lengthy, profoundly emotional conversation. Welcome to another episode of Murder Was The Case, everyone. Dr. Peter Vronsky is back with me, and we're going to be speaking with another lady who he's working with, who is the relative of a victim of serial killer Richard Cottingham, and she has done a lot of work to get that solved along with Peter. So this story, we think it's winding up, never seems to. It just keeps unfolding. I'm here with Sonia Ruiz-McGraw. Sonia, welcome to Murder Was The Case.
2: Thank you very much, Lee.
1: I just want to hear the story. Everyone is familiar by now with Peter and how he got involved with Richard Cottingham and Jennifer Weiss and that angle. But as I said, this just keeps unfolding. So rather than bringing everyone through those same details again, why don't we just get to where you come in? So maybe from your perspective, if you can.
2: My grandmother, Lorraine, is my mother's mother. My whole life, I had heard about my grandmother, but I didn't really know too much about her. I knew that she was killed at some point. I didn't really know why, and our family never knew who did it. You know, back then, it was 1970, so there wasn't really much outlet to find things out as far as, you know, with DNA evidence and just any kind of evidence period in general, right? The murder affected my whole life. Growing up, my mom didn't turn out too well because of it. And her mother's murder was something that happened when she was very young. She was nine going on 10 years old. Although I didn't know my grandmother at all. I was exposed to the results and the effects that it had on my mother as the child in the situation. She also had a brother, Lorraine's son, who was also affected by the situation. He also didn't turn out so great. He ran the streets and was involved in nightlife lifestyle and got in trouble a lot. Um, He also turned out to be, you know, very abusive in his relationships and not being able to keep a relationship. My mom also the same thing. She was never married. She was never able to keep a healthy relationship. She ended up to get with my father, who also was not quite a healthy person. Lorraine being murdered was the beginning of a cycle, lifetime cycle of abuse, depression, anxiety, post traumatic stress. And so as the next child into the situation, I was exposed to all these remnants of what she had experienced. And becoming a mother, she wasn't able to change those things too much. And I was exposed to a lot of depression, stress, anxiety.
1: People talk about intergenerational trauma. And I think sometimes we kind of roll our eyes when we hear that. But it sounds like that's something that you're alluding to. Maybe it's not something that carries on genetically, but it's A cycle of things that have happened earlier affecting subsequent generations. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yes. In this situation, where we grew up in Queensbridge, my direct bloodline so my mother, my grandmother Lorraine, and also her mother Adeline grew up poor, unmarried, or married and divorced. All three generations before me are of broken home. All three generations before me are of poverty. And I strongly feel that that is why my grandmother Lorraine had entered into the adult entertainment industry, because I believe that at that time, as women, we didn't really have a choice as to what to do for employment. You know, it was either be a secretary or be a nurse or be a housewife and really be a housewife was the main goal of the woman you know to be with a successful man or a man that takes care of you and being able to stay home be with the children Lorraine's mother Adeline she was married and their father unfortunately was somewhat of an alcoholic and promiscuous he ended up to leave Adeline with her children which was Lorraine Lorraine also had two sisters so Adeline was left with her three children, and her husband or ex-husband went off and had another family with somebody else, and didn't take care of her anymore or the children anymore. They did not see him anymore or hear of him until he passed away. So when those three children, which were all female, when those three children grew up, uh, they grew up in this time of being very limited. And so Lorraine was extremely beautiful. She was known to have a beautiful body that I know of she was known to be a great dancer that I know of as far as you know being able to move her hips and those types of things she wasn't being complimented for being a go-go dancer so to speak but for regular life and being bubbly and being fun so unfortunately because of where she was growing up which was in the housing project Queensbridge which is located in Long Island City New York She was exposed at a young age to drugs and alcohol. It's a poverty-stricken neighborhood. It was even worse back then than it is now, so you can imagine. She fell into that lifestyle because she fell into the nightlife. And, you know, that's what goes on with that. She also ended up getting with a man who was involved in drugs and alcohol. And so he enabled her to continue into that lifestyle. She ended up to marry him at a very young age. She married him, I believe she was 16 when she married him, and he was 18. That's when my mother was also born. So she had my mother at 16 and my uncle at 18. For a couple of years, they stayed together. They were separated from very young. They only ended up to stay together maybe about five years. But she started leaving the house because she was on the drugs and the alcohol. So now she was leaving the house to go find that. And so she was leaving her husband behind, leaving her children behind. At a very young age, the children were already being passed around from family member to family member before she ever even disappeared. So as far as generational trauma, yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever the parents are exposing the children to, you know, that's the problem. It can stop, but really up to the parent or the elder at that time, what they want to expose the youngins to
1: bit of a historical perspective on this. Adelina Montalvo, so your great-grandmother, Lorraine's mother, her issues with her husband leaving, that was maybe the 1940s? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then your grandmother, Lorraine, this was in the 60s?
2: Yes. I feel that Lorraine probably went the route that she went because she felt that maybe she might be able to be discovered. Even nowadays, you know, sometimes the woman is discovered when she's exact dancing or in some type of nightlife area. And so I think that's probably why Lorraine... You should
0: mention, Sonia, that Lorraine was a licensed dancer. When you say entertainment yes. industry, kind of sounds like you're also thinking sex work. And that's not the same thing. She... Yes. Was a licensed dancer, kind of in the way Jennifer was when she was go go dancing. Explain that a little bit.
2: Yes. In the investigation as to trying to identify Lorraine's body, it did come out that she did have a license to legally go go dance in a restaurant bar establishment. So, with that being said, I think that piece of proof right there backs up what I'm saying that she wanted to be discovered in some sort of way for a talent in some sort of way. And her becoming licensed shows that she was trying to maybe do something in the right way. But because she was also an addict, as we know, that kind of deters a person.
1: Yeah, it's a seedy and exploitative world. And unfortunately, people, as you said, they do want to get discovered. They want to try and make something of themselves, but it's full of predators who at the same time are just looking to parasitize them and and bring them down. Of course, lots of drugs and alcohol. We know that Lorraine did turn to walking the streets at some point. Did you manage to establish when that was or maybe why that was?
2: Unfortunately, my family has not shared with me too much. As far as what happened to Lorraine or how their take on it is that she was gone from the family already for a long time before what happened to her happened to her. And so it was hard to keep tabs on her or know where she was at any given time. And especially once again, we're talking about the 60s. There were no cell phones. There were no easy anything to locate a person or get in touch with a person at any given time. So my gut feeling is that she was probably on the streets throughout the time that she was making attempts to do the right thing. So another thing that she did, for example, they found in the evidence when trying to identify her was that she actually did have a job at some point and she had a job as a secretary. So her timeline is sporadic. Again, she may have been trying to do the right thing in between, but because it wasn't giving her maybe what she wanted Or because of the addiction, the addiction was now leading her in the wrong direction. So it seems like in the end, she may have been using the go-go license to dance, but then mixing it with something else at the end. Let's say possibly what happened with Richard, right? We think that maybe he might have met her someplace. We think that maybe he might have seen her different places a couple of times, but In the end, we believe he may have seen her in an establishment in which she was go-go dancing, but then in an attempt to bring her home, she went along with that. She went along with going home with a person. And so her mom was also poor. She saw her mom poor. She saw her mom single and struggling. Her mom worked in the pasta factories that existed in Long Island City at that time, and also around the Steinway area of Queens. Anybody that's from Queens would know these areas, what I'm talking about, very, very well-known areas. And she was working all times of the day and night to support the three kids. And she ended up staying in the projects and living her whole entire life in the projects, unfortunately. But for me, I feel that Lorraine saw this feel that she wanted to be the one to maybe help her mom
1: what do we know about the murder itself we've established that she was picked up probably at a club or something by Richard Cottingham and that he killed her but as much as you can get into both from an emotional and what you know point of view can you take us through what seems to have happened
2: yes so as far as The small details of whatever my family has told me, and I'm now putting it together with what I've come across with the police, with Peter, with Richard. It would seem that once again, Lorraine was probably trying to do the right thing in different points of her short life in the end. And she did end up to comply with going to a rehab the very last time that she was arrested. She was arrested in October 1969, and instead of going to jail, she went to a rehab that was in Beacon, New York, upstate. I don't remember the name of the facility that she stayed at, but anyway, the facility is abandoned. It's no longer anyway. She spent some time at this rehab. The family knew that she was at a rehab, but they didn't know supposedly exactly when she was to be released. I'm not really sure why they didn't follow up or call the facility to check up on that. That's something that upsets me because I feel, I don't know, maybe that would have made some sort of difference maybe. So the last thing that they knew was that she was in a rehab and then she turned up dead. She was found in a hiking area along Route 9W in the Nyack, upstate New York area. She was found naked no clothes, no belongings. She had some injuries, some bruises scattered throughout her body, mostly on her legs, some scratches on her arms. Looks like she may have put up some type of fight. And she had marks around her neck, strangulation marks. And you know, she was still very beautiful, you know? She was still very beautiful. She was found very beautiful. Some people hiking the trail in that area had discovered her body. Her body might have been there for a couple of days. At the time, it was snowing, so her body might have been preserved slightly for a longer period that she was there. They weren't able to identify her until they found uh, the evidence of her having, you know, a job someplace as well as the go-go license. And so when they identified her body, they then contacted my family. At the time, Lorraine's sisters were both married. So the husbands went with Adeline Lorraine's mother, to go confirm that that was her. And so I'm not sure why my family never pursued finding the killer. It was one of those things that you don't really want to tell people, you know, that your daughter or your cousin or your niece was a drug addict and possibly a prostitute. That's not something that makes them look any good. So once she passed away, they kind of just swept it under the rug and You know, called it what it was, what they expected it to be. They kind of expected for her to turn out this way. And because she did and because of the lifestyle she lived, they kind of just, well, that's what happens. That's what happens when you do what you do. So it was never any pursuit of who the killer was. No one knew that the case was still open. No one knew that the case was still being worked on at all sporadically throughout the years, you know, like when a file comes across the desk, you know, it wasn't an ongoing thing, but just sporadically, you know, every couple of years, somebody will open up the folder. But my family never pursued anything. And so growing up, seeing the effect that it's taken on my mom, and now it's taken on me because of my relationship with my mom. My relationship with my mom is completely unhealthy, completely abnormal. And a lot of it stems from her trauma with now she has a daughter and she was so controlling over me in my life. And that probably came from her being afraid if I was ever going to, you know, go down the wrong path. My mom never did certain things. She never, she was never one to, you know, try any type of drugs or even drink alcohol. She was very strict with those things. She was right for that. And I started to turn angrier with my family because of the fact that they just kind of let all of this go. And they let all of it go because, you know what, it doesn't directly affect them. Once they got over whatever they got over, that was it. Really, Adeline, Lorraine's mom, was the next one that was really affected. And once she kind of passed away too, now it's really, we don't gotta focus on this anymore. Now there's really nobody that's left that's been so impacted. Now my mom has become so estranged from the rest of the family that they don't experience the direct effect that it still has on her to this day. My mom is still deteriorating. She's still talking about her mom. And my whole life, she repeated and repeated how the killer was never found. So I decided to take the initiative to try to see, you know, what I can do. And I was always like that, you know, I was always like that with everything. I'm an only child. I also grew up without my father. I don't have any brothers. My mother's brother, you know, was also messed up, as I said. So he wasn't really a great male figure in my life, he was in and out, and then eventually also passed away. So my mom really is the only survivor directly of this situation. And so I became interested in trying to see if I can resolve something that's been pretty much pending for 45 and 50 years, and ringing in my head about how the killer was never found, the killer was never found. I mean, My mom repeated this and repeated this and repeated this my whole entire life. So one day I was just talking to a friend of mine who's also in law enforcement. I had just decided that I was going to try again. I had tried previously in previous years to see if I can find something, being that her murder made public record, the newspaper and that type of stuff, to see if I can put something together But because my family was so unsupportive and would just like shun me away from them when I would try to ask them anything, it was very discouraging. And, you know, also as a young person, you know, you're also into your own life a little bit. Take some time for you to like grow up in your head, really. In November of 2020, I had made the decision to start again and try to look again and really, really push and really look this time because I almost felt like an urgency realizing how long it had been. It had been 50 years, 49 years. I'm like, oh my God, like, uh, what can I do about this? I really did all that for my mom. I really just wanted to give my mom this gift of finally feeling satisfied with something because she's been so incredibly unsatisfied in her life, just by so many things and so many people. And so I just wanted to just do something.
1: What year was it that Lorraine Montalvo-McGraw was murdered?
2: Her body was discovered on March 1st, 1970. There's some speculation as to if she was murdered 24 hours before or a couple of days before she was found, as I said, just because it was wintertime and her body seemed to have been preserved uh, to some extent, but her body was discovered on March 1st, 1970. And so this is the date that they gave her the day to death that they gave her.
1: So what is it that you decided to do?
2: I started just Googling my grandmother's name you know, just to kick it off to see in which direction I can go. I knew that her murder had made the newspaper and made the news media. So I was trying to see if I can find some sort of article, the actual article or whatever article was out there about her. I had not seen anything as of yet at that time. This was in November of 2020. So I started googling her name, there was a lot of information out there about her already. Also a couple of websites that honor women who are in adult entertainment and get killed, but still nothing that was in the direction that would just lead me anywhere. So I just kept on searching, searching. My family wasn't quite sure exactly or didn't really remember where her body was found, if it was in Long Island or if it was in upstate. So I started Googling different areas in Long Island and different areas upstate. I did have her death certificate, so I was able to look up the area in which she was found. At that time, I started dialing a couple of phone numbers and reaching out to some people. Because I had no real faith in anything that I was doing, I didn't really write anything down at that moment. I was just kind of, you know, doing it all willy-nilly just to see if somebody would answer me. A couple of people did end up to answer me back. But it wasn't anything of significance as of yet. I want to say it wasn't until about February of 21 that I got a response from somebody significant. So first of all, an estranged family member had contacted my mother. This also upset me because me having the protection that I have over my mom my family knows that my mom isn't quite capable of handling certain information, you know, by herself or firsthandedly. I like to kind of like be my mom's buffer, filter for those kind of things. And so my mom goes through these episodes very often in which she screams and cries and she talks about everything under the sun, including Lorraine. And so in a visit, I had paid to her. I see her once every two, three weeks. Um, She's still in Queensbridge in the same apartment that we all grew up in, including Lorraine. She sits in that apartment, you know, with these memories and with these thoughts. And at that time, the family member had contacted her and told her that some sort of officer had contacted them. And it was in regards to Lorraine. And so my mom just blurted this out. She really wasn't sure exactly who the officer was or what the details were, because, you know, once you hear this kind of news, it's like your heart drops, you black out, you know, you don't know what's being said to you. You don't know what the hell happened, any of those things. So that's how my mom tends to react, especially with this kind of topic. So when she blurted that out to me, you know, she had no idea at that time that I was doing research and that I was contacting people. So this was like, oh, my God, like what's going on? Because I thought maybe something I did or somebody that I contacted, maybe something I said sparked something. You know, when my mom said this, I needed to know exactly exactly what was going on so I can find this person that she's possibly talking about. So she explained to me, you know, the family member that contacted her. So I contacted them. I questioned them, you know, why didn't they let me know first? And I let them know, you know, that I was working on something and that they should have let me know first. Anyway, they don't give a shit, right? So they told me whatever they told me. At the same time that I was receiving this information from my family, within those same couple of days... I had gotten a message back from someone who claimed to be the assistant of Nadia Faizani. When my family member told me the officer that had contacted them, I had contacted that officer. The officer had let me know some information as far as what they thought at that time with my grandmother's murder and who might've been involved. So when they gave me the name, which they gave me the name Richard Cottingham. I did do my own research on him same day within those days. And I had seen that there were a couple of people that had been in touch with this guy from the outside. And one of those people was Nadia Faizani. So I reached out to Nadia Faizani, hoping that she can maybe put me in touch with Richard. But then, as I said, somebody that said that It was her assistant told me that she wasn't working on the topic of serial killers anymore. And then she pointed me in Mr. Peter's direction. And so I contacted Peter right away. I did the same thing. I emailed him. I called him. I looked for him on Facebook. I started looking up his work. And I saw that he was also in touch with this guy as well, Richard. So Peter was very responsive. He contacted me back right away. And my friendship with him began in this whole ordeal. And uh, Mr. Peter Vronsky has been a mentor to me in the situation. He's coached me in the situation. He's helped me deal with the different perspectives When dealing with the police, when dealing with Richard himself, I also came across seeing Miss Jennifer Weiss, that she had also been in touch with Richard and had some sort of relationship with Richard because of her own situation, which was that her mother was murdered by Richard. So I said, hell, you know, I want to get in touch with this guy. You know, I want to talk to this guy. I want to see what he has to say to me, you know. If he's talking to all these people, you know, why can't he talk to me? I didn't see any reason with that, why that couldn't happen. And so I asked Peter if he knew any information that he can give to me so that I can get in touch with Richard. And so he informed me the different ways of how I can start communicating with him. So one of the ways I started communicating with him was through email over this website, JPay. And so through the JPay, we started emailing. I basically just, you know, wanted to become friends with the guy. I know that sounds crazy because who the hell would say they want to become friends with a serial killer? Never mind the serial killer that murdered your family member. But, you know, that's the way my whole life has been. I've had to do things my whole life to make things happen, whatever that may be. And so I think that maybe Lorraine as I mentioned before, already a couple of times, she may have had that same spirit in which she had to make things happen. But the the difference between me and her is that she was an addict. And that's very important to know because that changes people. That changes people. It changes the way they behave. It changes the way they think. It changes everything. It changes who they are. It changes the decisions that they make. It changes everything. So I feel that if that one element didn't exist then maybe it would have turned out differently. But the addiction element just causes you to also become just so desperate that you're willing to just do anything. But anyway, I digress. Going back to the the idea of the energy, right? The energy that I'm carrying, that I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to go above and beyond the norm to get the answer that I need to get. If it's that important to me, I'll do it. I didn't care what people thought about it. I didn't care what my family thought about it. I, I eventually stop even telling my family anything. I stopped telling them anything. I stopped asking them anything because they weren't willing to tell me anything anyway. And when I would ask them anything, they would fight with me. They would tell me I can't move on. This is what they tell me. I can't move on, you know, and that's because they didn't directly experience the aftermath, the consequences. They didn't experience that. Their mothers, Lorraine sisters, they ended up to have successful lives, you know, and good for them. Good for them. But that's not the way my mom's life turned out. And that's not the way my life turned out. And they don't have a respect for that. So eventually, I just stopped even telling them anything. Whatever information they already told me, that's what I went with. And I was just on my own completely in this. If anything, Peter was more my friend in this than anything else.
0: There's a kind of synchronicity to it. The moment that Sonya is looking, November, is the moment, the same moment that I'm identifying Lorraine McGraw. Mm. Because how we got to Lorraine McGraw was just this random thing Cottingham said. About eight months earlier, about a murder at 9W. I got the name. They got the scent, the cops, that there was something out there. And rather than looking for the family, they asked me to find a family. So I had contacted. I found somebody, a a second cousin of Sonia's up in Long Island. And they were very hostile. I was rebuffed. Everything I found, I handed it over to, to at that point, it was South Mayak police.
2: Oh, yeah, that's right. They, Cop contacted a family member, and Peter yeah. contacted. He ended up to find another family member, also from the same side, but he ended up to find another family member, he himself by himself. Yes, he did.
0: So all that kind of happened at that moment, and definitely the family was not happy to hear from me, and so I can imagine what happened next. So at that point, That's when Sonia suddenly contacts me around February. And I already knew she existed because South Mayak told me that the granddaughter, we had the granddaughter in, we had talked to her, but I couldn't call her because I was kind of privileged information. Mm. So I knew you existed. I just couldn't call you. And then you called, you know, Nadia, Nadia put you in touch with me. And so we started talking. Pops didn't know that yet. There is
1: something about this as it's unfolded, going back to when you went into the hotel, Peter. Right up to this very moment, I feel it right now. I'm a very skeptical person, but it does feel there's something mystical stirring behind all this that is, I don't know, it almost makes you want to shiver.
0: Well, it's an incredible thing. I've never been part of resolving a homicide. I've been around a lot of them but i'm always observing them i've never been as instrumental as i feel in this and as much kind of part of a chemistry that something else is making up i mean this couldn't be done if sonia wasn't there mm. this couldn't be done if uh, south mayak didn't step up and the officer we can name him connor fitzgerald if he didn't come out for whatever reasons he did pursue it. That strange, brief 15-second encounter I had with Cottingham yeah. and Jennifer calling me. Yeah, maybe this was the only thing it was about. Maybe none of those murders will be solved. Maybe it was just this one. Lorraine Montalvo-McGrath might have been just about her. I wonder, though, it seems that
1: Cottingham has probably killed about as many people as Ted Bundy, maybe slightly less, maybe even more. Who maybe knows? more, yeah. So can something like that just be left at five victims when there's so much fallout, maybe the idea that it could just be left and there'd never be any movement with it is in itself unrealistic. So there was always something that was going to happen with it and now it is because there's so many loose ends that haven't been tied up.
2: Yeah. Right. And like I said, her case file has been open all these years. None of my family ever even knew about that. For everything to have the timing that it's had, you know, because if my family had tried to dug up something from before, they probably would not have had any luck because of just everything. The evidence that was collected was kind of like a little bit of a dead end and just the thought process, you know, the thought process matters too in a way with who's handling it, all the elements that were involved as of today, helped close the case. If Jennifer Wise's mother would have never been killed, then she would have never given Richard the experience of dealing with a victim family member. And then introducing Peter to the situation who himself is an investigator forensic investigator and now he ran into this guy years ago it's crazy it's crazy just everything and all the people involved with the situation i don't know if it would have been unfolded at all had it not been like this it needed to have all the different people from these different perspectives to come together and just bring it all together it's all had its own domino effect
0: And that's the thing, right? Because if one piece was missing, it would not have happened. And that's what makes you almost get a sense of the supernatural, because there were so many pieces that had to be there,
1: right? It's even strange for me, because I just remember when you would tell me about the time you ran into the serial killer. And it's like, oh, that's an interesting story. It's a party piece, right? Oh,
2: so you knew knew about that story before this?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah <laughs> you know, before Jennifer, before or any of that, you no, know, I was writing my last book, Sons of Cain. Oh, was, wow! I, was, you know, I wasn't going to be in the serial killer business after Sons of Cain.
1: He keeps saying that, like telling me he's, he's sucked in forever. I'm done, but no, it's odd for me because I just always thought, well, I know a guy with an interesting story. When I'm got him around other people, I'll get him to tell it. And now I've just been sitting here and every time I check in with them, there's more, there's more, there's more. And I don't (laughs) know if it stops with you, to be honest. Maybe this is the beginning of the dam bursting.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's very interesting to be somebody like you and like hear the story live unfolding over many, many, many years. You know, like that and that now you have the experience of seeing it over many years, you know, and not ever thinking that something's going to come out of it. And then just all of a sudden something comes out of it.
0: So fast, too, Sonia, because you're in the third act. You came in last and yet your case got closed first. Of all these cases that I have, I mean, I've got 36 cases that I've tied to Richard. Yours is the first that was definitively closed. Completely. Diane Cusick is kind of the second, but he's only indicted. That's not closed yet. Lorraine McGraw is the first case in my life ever that I I can say I played a role in that way. And certainly Diane Cusick will be rich, pleads guilty, and that gets closed. And that's ongoing right now. Like I said, I can't talk much about it, but that's Mm -hmm. ongoing. And uh, Mm -hmm. I met her 18 months ago. And homicide cases don't get closed in 18 months. I know it didn't feel that way.
2: Every other month, we were like, okay, something's going to happen now. Something's going to happen. Something should happen now. Something should happen mm-hmm. now. And it just And it just, something would just come in oh. front of it or some type of shit show. Uh, yeah. Somebody said something, did something. Uh, forget it. Richard's pissed off. Everybody's pissed off. It was always something that was prolonging, prolonging, prolonging. Yeah. But... If I can just get into when I contacted Richard simultaneously, when I had gotten in touch with Peter and confirmed everything that was going on, Peter had also confirmed who the officer was at that time, as he mentioned, Mr. Conor Fitzgerald, and my family member had also told me the same kind of name. So I looked him up, I found him, I went over to go see him and he also lets me know what's going on that who they think it is and what they plan on doing so he gave me the confidence in him that he was going to make sure this gets closed Make sure this doesn't go undone and that he was going to follow through with this. He was due to like move around in the police department a little bit in the next coming months and that he was going to stick with my grandmother's case and he was going to do the right thing by her. As time went on, I also started to get to know Connor a little bit. I developed also what I thought was to be a little bit of a friendship with him, you know, through him working for me and my grandmother. I let him know the part that my grandmother's death has played in my life. I had spoken to him a couple of times at length, maybe like three times at length, four times in which we really dove deep into my feelings towards this situation and what I want to see to come out of this situation And how I want my grandmother to be honored out of this instead of being looked down upon. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not too happy with the way my family has just like made her memories so like, we don't talk about that. I don't like that. That's my grandmother. I got feelings towards that. And to say that you don't want to talk about that because you're ashamed or you're embarrassed. I take that offensively. And as a family member, I would think that you would want her to be seen in a positive light to the granddaughter and and that type of stuff. But it's like, they don't even care. They don't even, Never mind. think about it. They don't even care. Their feeling with this is just disconnected. So with me having that feeling with my family that I don't have the support from them, the encouragement from them, I looked for the support and the encouragement from Connor, also from Peter. And even dare I say, from Richard, I needed to talk to him because I needed to let out what I've been holding onto inside. And he was the one for me to do it. Sounds weird, but, you know, he showed more care about how this has affected me (laughs) than the people you would think are supposed to. Such a weird experience. I'm going all over the place because I'm just blown away by the way he handled me, you know, throughout this time. Richard being the killer, the way he handled me, that he handled me like in the right way. You know, it's weird to say that he's doing something right. But, you know, oh, oh, my God. I'm sorry. Is there something you want to ask me before I go on or?
1: No, just a before thought. I don't you know wanna... I should say it, but why not? That's probably what makes him dangerous.
2: Yes. Yes. That is what makes him dangerous. <laughs> that is what makes him dangerous. So good thing he's not here in real life. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as at bay and over the phone and over email he did do the right thing for me and he did act right towards me which is again i know it's crazy to say people are probably going to be like what the hell is wrong with this girl why is she talking in any type of nice way about this fucking guy oh i'm sorry i'm sorry do you Uh have cursing (laughs) we're okay
0: you okay. Can stand okay. and cocksucker. Okay.
2: All right. Great. Podcast. All right. Very good. So yeah, people might be thinking, why is she talking so great about this fucking guy? It's not that. It's just I had nobody else to really rely on, really go to, and he was the one, unfortunately, to be there to be the one to do it. Connor is also a young detective, a little bit younger than me. So I had felt at the time in the first couple of months that we were working on this, that I had developed a little bit of a friendship with him, that I had developed an understanding with him as to where I wanted this to go, how I wanted this to be handled, how I wanted this to end at the end of the day. And he seemed like he was on board with everything as far as making sure he pursued my grandmother's case. Now, at that time, I did not tell him what my plans were. And I didn't confirm anything with Peter either, as far as if I was going to contact Richard or not. That's something I kind of kept to myself until I actually did it. So when I asked Peter if I can contact him, yes, he gave me the information to contact him. But I didn't say if I was actually going to do it or not until I did it. And then I shared it with Peter. I didn't share it with Connor when I did go ahead and pull the trigger to contact Richard, because unfortunately, I don't have good experience with police in my past. And that doesn't come from me even doing anything wrong. I've never done anything wrong in that type of sense. But just being someone that grew up in the projects The police just tend to treat you differently. It doesn't matter if you're from there, then, you know, they just tend to treat you differently. And I was mistreated a couple of times by police. So I don't really have a good experience with police. And also, I didn't want him to, like, try to stop me. You know, I I thought maybe he would try to stop me or or try to sabotage something with my grandmother's case. You know, I don't know. I'm just used to moving in a certain way like that by myself. But so I used the information that Peter gave me. I went ahead and did it. I had made contact with Richard through the JPEG, But when I wrote him a full letter, went to you and I said, okay, I'm thinking about really pursuing this. And then I asked Peter his advice. Is there a special way that I should be talking to this guy? You know, I remember
0: what? you were going to write him that you were talking to me as a doctor and you thought I was his doctor. Yes, right? that's right. Right. Remember, we were going to look like a little bit dizzier than.
2: Well, when me and you spoke, you explained to me that, you know, you had been kind of coaching him as well to get him to talk about things. In yeah, a we way, talked
0: for a long you know? time because when we talked in March. It wasn't until. June, that we decided to do those pictures and send them that letter. So so I think there was a long time before you got around to thinking that you're actually going to do this.
2: Yeah, no, I didn't contact Richard right away. I did not contact Richard right away. And then the first thing Richard
0: does is he asks me to check her out. Like is she an undercover copper? Right. Okay. All right. That was his first response. So I gotta vet her.
2: Yes. In that time period before I contacted Richard, I was just getting to know Connor and getting to know you. And yeah. me and Peter were speaking more than actually me and Connor because Connor they are. didn't really have much to say that often <laughs> about Wasn't his own kids. Exactly
0: case. returning calls either. Right.
2: Uh yes, right. So I started sending Richard pictures in June, but I had first wrote to Richard in April. It was April of 21 that me and Richard started talking. We had exchanged letters, emails, brief calling. Those were very extremely brief because he was always getting interrupted by his nurse. So our main communication leaned towards the emails and the pictures, because now we were able to like fully say our thoughts.
0: We didn't do the pictures till I met you in June. No,
2: we didn't do the pictures until June. But just in general, as far as our communication goes, we relied more on the emailing because it was just more convenient. Both me and him were able to be more descriptive with each other with things and take our time, you know, writing things. And so that ended up to be our primary form of communication. So, yes, I did end up to start sending him pictures so that he can put, you know, a face to the name. I also sent him pictures of my dog. I do have a Doberman Pinscher named Shadow, who I turned into a performance dog. He's a very talented dog, very balanced dog, beautiful dog, friendly, lovable. And this dog always does something to people when they see him because he's so scary looking. Once the people realize that he's trained and that he's friendly, the dynamic of it is just like, I don't know, he gets to people like people don't forget about him. So with that being said, I'm not sure if you had mentioned to me already that Richard loves animals, yeah. which is also very strange, right? This fucking guy he loves yeah, animals.
0: That um, was why I wanted shadow in those pictures. Yeah, <laughs>
2: absolutely. I really wanted to send him the pictures of my dog because I figure, you know, what the hell? My dog has touched so many people his whole life that he's ever met. I wanted to do anything I could to show Richard the interest and grab his interest. And Pete had explained to me. That Richard is attracted to women who are beautiful and sensitive looking or gentle looking, but they got like a rough side, a rough side, a tough side, you know, so with. Me, I am like a skinny girl, you know, I'm a dainty looking girl. And then I have this huge animal, you know, this huge 75 pound animal people cross the street when they see me walking with him. And they think that I can't control him because I'm small. But They don't know that he's trained. I got control over his brain. So that whole dynamic of the fact that I have control over his brain, this is like the idea, the dynamic that I thought was interesting and I wanted to use with Richard. You know, Richard sees himself as well, and he is right. He is a type of animal, right, that he is a type of undomesticated animal. I wanted to show him that dynamic that I can control that, that I have control over that, even though I'm just a dainty, maybe even skinny, frail looking girl. And Richard ended up to love the dog. He's always asking me for pictures of the dog. I don't know if he's liking the dog more than me nowadays, Um, (laughs) but he loves the dog. He's mentioned the dog to me so many times. He's mentioned the dog to Peter, even to Peter about my dog. And so I've sent him pictures of me with my dog. I've sent him pictures of me with Roberto Duran. I know that he was into boxing and into sports. So uh, Roberto Duran, I've done charity events in boxing a couple of times in the past. And so I had a picture with Roberto and I sent Richard the picture. And so all these different Pictures that I sent to him, they weren't pictures for me to send, like you're sending to a friend and catching up with life. It was just more so that I can tap into his psychological. And so in that way, if I treat him like a regular person versus a serial killer, I kind of now like level with him. And so now he feels like he can relate to me. And if he feels like he can relate to me, then this will have him open up to me. And in this type of way is the way you have to approach this kind of guy. You have to make him feel that comfort so that he opens up to you. And he's not going to just open up to you just like that. You got to talk to him. You got to have that conversation. You know, you got to spark his brain, spark his memory. That's really the only way he's able to even figure anything out or let you know anything. You know, this is a 75 year old guy. We're talking about a 70. What is he? 70, 76, 77. And then he's killed 100 people for him to remember exactly what he was doing and when this takes a lot of time. This takes a lot of probing. And that's what it took. It took a lot of time. And Peter coached me along the way. He helped me think about these things, about how to probe his brain, what would attract Richard's attention. And so I followed a lot of Peter's advice. And now I started getting the hang of it myself. And knowing what Richard is looking for and what he's expressing and how to tap into that. That was going on for maybe three or four months, in which Connor was not aware Connor was not aware that I was talking to Richard Peter had advised for me to maybe talk to Connor and express to him you know what I was doing soon but I refused to do that I didn't want to have nobody's influence on anything I was going to Peter for the influence because of the relationship that I know Peter had with Richard over many years Richard didn't really have a relationship with Connor. So my concern for his input on everything, I didn't really want it. And I didn't want him to put any input on to Richard either. I didn't want him to threaten Richard in any type of way. Oh, don't talk to this girl. Oh, if you do this. that, And then now that door for me is closed. At the end of the day, for me, I wanted to talk to Richard because I feel like I was the best person for that. And it's not a normal thing. It absolutely is not a normal thing. Obviously, in the typical, usual way, no type of murderer or anything of this nature would be talking to the victim themselves or maybe a victim's family member. That's not something that's normally done. But even though that's not something that's normally done, like I said, I'm very used to doing things not normally my whole life. So I was very adamant about... Wanting to talk to this guy, wanting to hear what he has to say. I just felt like I was the best person to maybe identify the details that he might express. Because after all, I also, as I said, grew up in the same apartment as Lorraine. I grew up in the same area as Lorraine. I walked the same streets as Lorraine. Whatever descriptions he might have had with things, that was for the police to still figure out. But I already know certain things. So if he said if if I can identify his descriptions, that's more of a sure thing than just the police, you know, hearing him out. And then now they're trying to figure it out and now they're trying to figure it out without me. Then I also know some information, as I said, little bits and pieces, whatever my family told me, what if he would have hit on something that they might have told me that was familiar to me. So I wanted to hear directly from him. And I was skeptical. I was very skeptical. Also, is this fucking guy going to be able to remember? Is he going to be able to remember all the shit that he's done? If he's done this to 100 people, how is he going to? And I'm going to tell you another thing, too. A lot of his victims look extremely similar. How do I know he's not going to mix up Lorraine with somebody else? You know? So it was just so many things that I just felt like I needed to be. I also wanted him to face me. If he is actually the one that did this to her, I wanted him to have somebody to face. Not that he faces the police and, you know, the police, this is their job and they do this on a regular basis. They don't really have the sentimental level, the attachment. They have it sometimes, but it's to a degree. It will never be like mine. Right. Because it's my grandmother, you know, so it would never be like mine. So I wanted him to have to face somebody, the real person, the real consequence, the real energy that it really is. I wanted him to face that. That's not something that criminals usually face. And I wanted him to face that. From my grandmother.
1: Proceed to part two of my interview with Sonia Ruiz McGraw and Dr. Peter Vronsky.
2: This is a Box Media Podcast.